Hi, this is Elizabeth McCarthy, producer of The Breakfasters on Triple R, and it's my pleasure to tell you what's coming up on this Best Bits of The Breakfasters podcast for this week. The team talked to scientist Chris KP about the concept of dog years. They also talked to author Bree Lee, who's written a brand new essay called Beauty. The team catch up with former Breakfaster Jeff Sparrow and talk about what that was like. Nat Harris joins the team when Jez is away and they talk about dinking on bikes and they also interview beloved Triple R broadcaster Chris Jostolkis who's just put out a new novel. It's called Damascus. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Triple R. It's that time to get weird science on a Wednesday and to do the honours, we're joined by very good boy, Chris KP. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, that does feel special. I think I understand how my dogs feel now. It's such a small phrase and yet it means so much. Uh, thank you. Uh, and look, speaking of dogs, uh, are we dog owners? Yes. Yes. Uh, Oh, wow. Okay, good. Except Daniel isn't. He has a fish. Mm. Hey, that's, that's like a dog? Yeah, precisely. No, I have been a dog owner and I look forward to uh, earning one. Or, you know, like getting a bigger place. Okay. Anyway, oh, I'll, yeah. it'll be a treat. I'm but... trying to think what the, what the equivalent of seat is for a fish. It's not seat. <laughs> right? That's right. Mm. Um, uh, so, well, you'd have to answer this, uh, but in your own mind, just uh, consider, you know, are you old dog owners? Because I, I am. Um, and that's an interesting question. Like, what's an old dog? And mm-hmm. and then of course you know, you ask someone you know you, if you mention oh I've got a you know a nine year old Great Dane like oh that's getting old for a Great Dane or I've got a thirteen year old you know pug like oh how cute you know blah 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 and people have got an idea what this means to them but and of course when people have that thought of what it means to them what they're really doing is they're comparing to us they're they're deciding what old means in terms of you know from a human perspective yes and there is the the idea of dog years. Which traditionally, and I grew up, you know, I, I learned this as a kid, almost like a fact, like a dog year is seven times a human year. Yes. It was just a thing you had. It was just mathematics. And in fact, it was one of the ways I thought, one of the things I thought about learning my seven times table was what a dog would be like. And, oh. Yeah. Um, it was unusual in some ways. Mm. Anyway, um, but the problem with that is that you just look at a dog from puppy to growing up and you know that that's kind of doesn't really stand up. I mean, a dog can be breeding when it's, you know, 12 months old. So, you know, a year old. So it's kind yeah. of really different to a person in some ways. And yet we have this, this uh, long, this generation-long habit of, uh, of, of assuming we know how, how a dog year relates to a human year. Human year. It turns out um, that some terribly clever people from the University of California in San Diego have actually done an analysis of a far more robust nature to compare our ages. Now, my colleague Laura covered this on, uh, on, on Sunday Go Go on Sunday. So if, um, it, it's, it's such a good story that it's, it's worth diving into, partly because of what it tells us, but also partly because of what it tells us about the way science is done. So that observation that I just said then about, you know, we just know that dogs and humans are just different, is reason enough to want to dig into it a bit more de- in a bit more detailed way. So when you say that a person is however old they are, we normally, that's just a calendar count. You're just adding it up. But in fact, there are ways of knowing how old they are by looking deep inside them at their DNA, because there are processes going on in there that can be used to track your age. So if you didn't know how old you were, so I don't know, you've been in some sort of horrific accident and lost your memory, there are ways of actually looking at changes to your DNA that will tell us how old you are. So your DNA is not, please don't think of it as, as it's not unstable, but it does change. Mm. 
There's a, there are chemical changes going on all the time, and one of the best known of those is what's called methylation, where essentially a small methyl group attaches to part of your DNA. And this happens at rates that we understand reasonably well. Like rings on a tree. Not unlike rings on a tree, yeah. Um, I mean, we know, you know, uh, we, know that we know humans because we're obsessed with ourselves, so we, we've studied that reasonably well. Uh, and we know that things can impact this, but we understand what those rates are, especially for some parts of your DNA. So what these, uh, these, these, uh, this team in, uh, at UC uh, in San Diego have done is they did the same analysis for dogs. They said, okay, what do we know about their methylation states? And they found that there are, in fact, similar regions that can be compared to humans reasonably reliably across the dog genome as well. Um, they ended up looking at 104 Labrador retrievers, which just sounds like the best job in the world. <laughs> uh, I don't know how long it went for, but you're working with Labradors. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting they chose 104. Yeah, well, I don't know how that. I came mean, they about. could have just cut off, cut off three Dalmatians. Had a yeah, bit of fun. So you yeah. say that, and then you look at the next dog, and you how do you say no to that? <laughs> 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 Sorry, hundred and three, you're not cool enough. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and what they found is that yes, there is. Um, yeah, there there are these comparable methylation rates, so we can compare ages, but they actually match up much better once you understand it to what a dog's aging process is actually like. And a dog's aging process is actually really good. They they're young for a very short period of time. Like, they reach puberty at less than 12 months. Um, but they have a very long middle age. They sort of have a middle age for ages, which is kind of the coolest part of being human, too. It's like you've grown up. You can make your own decisions. You can vote. You mm. can do all those cool things. But then dogs have you a very buy a short... motorcycle. You can buy a motorcycle. <laughs> you Boot can make dogs. bad decisions for a really long time. And then they have a very short old age at the end, um, which is the best way to live. So dogs, are, you know, in so many ways are just so much better than us. Now, if you really want to know and you want to calculate this and you do, I know, um, the formula that they determined by comparing the methylation rates across dogs and humans um, is the natural log of the dog's age. And I'm not going to explain a natural log for you. Suffice to say that it's based on a mathematical constant and it's not, it's not complicated per se, but it's too far too complicated to cover now. Um, so it's the natural log of the dog's age multiplied by 16 plus 31. So what does that mean in the real world? It means if you've got a one-year-old dog, it's the equivalent of about a 31-year-old person. <gasps> 31's oh. a great age. <laughs> but my dog's six. Okay, so your dog is probably closer to, you know, 50s, late 50s probably is my oh, best guess there. Oh, I see what you're doing there. And so it's not a straight line. It's a, it's a curved oh. line, if you like. Um, I have a 16-year-old dog. He's 75. Wow. As opposed to a hundred and something he would be if it, if he was if it was just seven uh, times the uh, the age. Oh, I have a greyhound, and we always talk about him as a retired footballer who's just letting himself <laughs> kind of spread out, and that oh, makes sense. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yes. At thirty-one. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, boy, how how would you say six-year-old? Uh, I'd, I'd say late fifties. Late fifties. Actually, I can work it out for you because conveniently um, there is actually a uh, there's actually an article I'll, I'll post it on Twitter later on. How old do you say it was? Six. There, there is an article that in the middle of the thing they've actually got a calculator. You can actually chuck in your dog's age and it will tell you fifty nine point seven years old. Okay. There you go. So dogs spend most time in what decade? I don't know whether I. Well, I'd, be, I'd struggle to give you a decade, but I would say middle age. So, so I would say somewhere between say I don't know. I'm making something there, but. 45 to 65 yeah, would be yeah. a lot of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, which is, which is pretty good, actually. In fact, often when, we, when you hear people talking about, like medical researchers talking about um, human ageing, the dream is not necessarily to live more years. I mean, that's okay, sure. But the dream is to have a better life in that time. So your really old, crappy years are quite reduced at the end. Oh. 
Mm. Um, and I'm, dogs have nailed this. <laughs> They've got that pretty much okay. So show me a dog at 31 and I'll show you the... <laughs> I'll show me a pup at 31. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. That's... that's a, so, and this natural log concept, yeah. I know you, you refuse to explain. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's essentially, a, essentially, a log is a scale. It's a way of, of, of comparing numbers. So when we look at, I mean, if you do a simple graph, yeah. um, if you were to put age against height for you know for kids in Australia, yeah, there's a you know there's a straight line that appears there somewhere that you can you can determine on that, and it's a very convenient thing to have that. But frequently, that's not what happens, and it's not surprising in this case where you're, you're looking at animals that whose rate of getting old, as opposed to just the number count, is not a year-to-year thing. One yeah. to two is different to two to three is different to seven to eight. And, and is so it it's a matter, different looking graph. Like different breeds, you know, like chihuahuas live for a long time and there's other breeds that don't live for a long time. What? How do you factor that in? I just think that means they have they have the... They just die uh, young. The, yeah, they just die young. So their middle age, even though the proportion of middle age is probably the same, the amount of it is just, is just reduced. Got right. you. Yeah. God. Oh, Chris KP. Yeah. Maths and doggos. <laughs> Finally. Uh, Chris That's K- a really good study. Chris, yeah, thanks very much. And yeah, take a treat on your way out. <laughs> Triple R. Bree Lees, an author, journalist, freelance writer, and 2019 Australian Financial Review Woman of Influence, whose work has appeared in the monthly Saturday paper, Guardian Australia, Crikey and more. Her first book, Eggshell Skull, was named Biography of the Year at the Australian Book Industry Awards, long-listed for the Stella Prize, and took out the People's Choice at this year's Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. And her second book, an essay titled Beauty, is out now. Bree, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh Thank you for having <laughs> was me. Was a bit so overwhelmed yeah. by all your achievements? Um, you can't see me, but I'm blushing. <laughs> um, you well, let's talk about the, uh, eggshell skull and and uh, how it relates to this new offering. Mm. So uh, I didn't realize something I talk about quite early on in Beauty, uh, the new book, uh, is that I really didn't realize how terrible my relationship with my body had been for years, years and years and years, until I was sitting down with the first version of the manuscript of what would eventually be Eggshell Skull and my disordered eating habits and attitudes and behaviours were in every single chapter. And I felt, I think it's very telling that in a book that is about sex crime um, and really severe stuff that carries a lot of shame, actually I felt extremely awkward and ashamed and embarrassed about the body image stuff. Um, and really grappled. I took it out, I put it back in, I took it out, put it back in. Um, And eventually I kept it in because I hoped that the book would be, Eggshell Skull that is, received as an examination of why why we think we are worth, um, what we are worth, why other people think they are are worth more than us Mm -hmm. sometimes. And I think you're a fool if you don't think women's worth in particular um, has, is inextricably connected at a very high level to what they look like. Mm. I think shame is the strongest word I felt when I was reading this because in some ways it was like reading my own inner dialogue at times and I found that quite overwhelming. I was really surprised that reading another woman's insight and you're so honest in this about the way that you view your own body and your relationship with your body. Uh, Why do you think we struggle to articulate what is often a constant dialogue for women in particular about how we relate to our own bodies. Mm, that's, so thank you very much for saying that. That's pretty much all a writer can hope for. Uh, but um, I find it very frustrating that women are essentially made to feel bad 
about wanting to even think or talk about the things other people have made them feel bad about. Um, And that shame and that silencing, um, it's so deep and it's so ingrained. Um, And I, when I was in the early stages of researching this book, I really had some insecurities around the topic being so well-trodden. I just wondered what I could possibly have to add to the conversation if if my voice was even needed or, or wanted in this space. Um, surely we'd sort of gotten over this stuff. But actually, it's we haven't. There's um, I wish there was more, particularly more diverse writing about these issues, um, but I wish there was just more serious consideration of these issues because I do believe, and the evidence shows, that not just diagnosed eating disorders but also disordered eating and um, unhealthy habits and attitudes and behaviors are all the more devastating for how frequently they are dismissed Mm. and that is absolutely a gendered thing you write in a book about approaching thinness like a mystery what do you mean by that and how's that played out for you in your life oh i think that line was more about um trying to get at this sense i had which i was then later able to find sort of research and language and frameworks of understanding for that um there's never you might tell yourself that it's about a particular goal um for lots of people that might be i don't know fitting into a wedding dress again or or hitting a particular kilo goal or whatever it is um but it's never you you can never actually hit it there is no such thing as Mm. reaching that perfect perfect level or certainly um in my experience once i did sort of hit as close as i sort of could get to that you you're not you don't become that happy person what takes its place is an absolute terror that you could ever um divert back to the person you were before it's all consuming you will never reach that second self that you have put on a pedestal Mm. how much um did your relationship with your body change when you were in a loving relationship? Yeah, um, hugely. Um, obviously, it takes a, a lot of time. Um, something I talk about is that I don't really believe – I have a healthy suspicion for sort of before and after recovery narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think what I feel like is I spend the first 27 years of my life – accidentally accruing these crappy thoughts and the best I can do is commit consciously to spending the next 27 years or more unlearning them. Um, But what I do know for sure is that in both my um, sort of my relationship with my partner but also in my familial relationships with my parents, none of the people around me have ever put any of this crap on me and I still struggled so much with it. Um, And they have always um, been so supportive and loving and generous and and they never made me feel like my worth was that attached to what I looked like um but already I'm I have reader responses from people who are saying things so devastating like that you know their mum was the first one to put them on a diet when they were 10 or 12 how are you supposed to you know how are people supposed to claw their way back from that that's Mm. so harmful and so damaging and sort of similar with eggshell skull my first book um when I think about how much I struggled with this stuff compared to all of my privilege and resources, even considering love as a privilege and a resource, um, it's the same with beauty where I don't know how people who don't have everything I have are, are expected to get through this. You talk about this concept of the dual self in the book as well and that struck a call with me, this kind of idea that we're never 
satisfied with who we are in the immediate moment. There's always a secondary version of ourselves that we're striving for. Could you talk a little bit about Mm. that concept and Mm. how it plays out? Thank you for bringing that up. That's probably one of the um, most valuable, I guess, ideas or or thinking and language frameworks that I found through researching for this. And it's this idea that um, we all have that a um, kind of projected ideal version of ourselves Um, and it's referred to as the second self and that second self is not just almost always um, thinner um, but it sort of brings the sort of promise of these other rewards we think that once we are thinner then we will be more successful then we will be more lovable on a daily basis we will be happier we have this entire life narrative that we build and develop that only the second self could ever possibly achieve. And there is no way, and some people, um, and I certainly did, got to the point where you almost identify more with that second self Mm. than you do with who you currently are. And a lot of that is to do with the way um, we are marketed to and the way these things are spoken about because we are encouraged to be aspirational. We are encouraged to be motivated. Um, We are encouraged to work towards that better self. Like how much of our diet, culture and um, beauty work, like makeup procedures, culture is based on revealing the real you it's all about this slightly other version of you who's just better and happier (laughs) in every way Um, and I'm interested in and I try to get a clear look at that for myself because you cannot identify with that second self without automatically inherently disrespecting who you currently are and it makes me mad when I think about how much joy and how much life experience we deny who we are now because we think we couldn't possibly be that better self until some inevitable mirage point on the future horizon. Mm. You also you speak a fair bit in schools. Is there anything that you're picking up? Mm, um, yes, not just from when I go to talk to schools, but actually touring this book, um, a large number of audience questions, every single event I've done have been from teachers teachers from girls' schools in Mm -hmm. particular, pretty much begging for any advice I might have for how they could possibly reach these girls who um, the most common questions I get are from teachers who are teaching grades sort of 10, 11 and 12, the end of high school. And essentially these teachers are just despairing because what it seems like is the problem is so far gone. Um, These girls are are just stuck in this world in this headspace where so much of their identity and so much of what they are told they are worth is dependent on what they look like. Mm. And something I think, again, is analogous with my first book is that we know from research that countries who do respectful relationships best with the best outcomes begin that education at the kindy preschool level. And my personal opinion is that in a world that is so saturated um, with really truly damaging not just images of of thinness and perfection but messaging um, language we have around all of these products and procedures whether they seem inane or extreme if we are not equipping very young like people from when they are very young to critique these ideas and to have better language around just being kind to themselves and others then we are doing them a disservice Mm. it's the same I think Um, as acknowledging that if you wait until sort of grade 12 to give someone a sex education, it's it's, it's too late. Um, And I I think the same thing is absolutely true for what I talk about in the new book. 
And after all you thinking and application of thought to it, do you still find some of the lessons that you explore pretty hard to apply yourself? No, I find them hugely valuable. Um, as I mentioned before, it's not like a before and after recovery no. narrative mm. because absolutely you always – well, I'll speak for myself. I will always, I'm sure, have days when I struggle more than others with how I feel within my body and that is totally, completely normal. But what I'm able to do now is actually really deliberately, consciously apply the frameworks and the language I learnt um, and my – quality of life is vastly improved mm. <laughs> well it's beautifully written as well and and beauty's out now through eleanor nunwin we've been speaking with its author brie lee thanks so much thank you for having me thanks brie triple r on fm digital online via the app beautiful day yesterday gorgeous Wasn't summer's it? out mm. did you get to get out and about at i all? did yes i it was it was it was i I almost got burnt. That's how, that's how much I leaned in. What were you doing sunbaking? I was sunbaking. I was sitting out in – well, I was sitting – I wasn't – I was at the pub, but I wasn't drinking. Oh. Yeah. By yourself? Yeah. What? Getting some, some work done. Getting, getting some work done. Exactly. I understand. Mm. Um, we caught up with our old mate Jeff Sparrow yesterday. Yeah, we did. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, caught up with – and he's – like we went to um, – uh, we just sat outside, and in my mind, on Lygon Street, what's the name of that cafe that I've forgotten the name of? Brunetti's. Brunetti's, yeah, that's where we were. Brunetti's. Um, yeah, we sat outside, and I just wanted, like, in my mind, I thought, oh, yeah, meeting at three o'clock, that's wine time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, we're meeting at two. Still, wine time. Oh, friends. Yeah. Mm. And Jez is like, pick me up. <laughs> I'm not driving. <laughs> you said, no, yeah, I did. <laughs> But um, you kindly offered, and I took you up on that offer for sure. True. Um, and then, uh, but we get there and we sit down, and um, Jeff just wants a coffee. Um, you had a glass of wine, but I was like, I think it's the first time I've ever caught up with him, and he hasn't said, "Let's get drunk." <laughs> <laughs> so I was shocked as well. Yeah, I was just like, "Oh, okay, this is you're on your own." Yeah, yeah. Well, you had it, but you were driving, yeah, but you were and right. it was like, well. You were the only one leaning in. Yeah. yeah. But I just had one glass of wine. Oh, all right. Yeah. I thought that was very restrained, actually, when I saw you just have one. I didn't realise it was – it makes sense because give... – If that, if there was table service? Yeah, I was thinking that. Things. Uh, there, there is a table service. I was thinking that as well because yeah. I'm driving and I wouldn't usually have a wine in the middle of the day because mm. I have to do work a bit later. But I thought, live a little, Jez is having one. But I remember thinking if there was someone – there was a waiter coming up, I probably would have wanted to just keep yeah. drinking wine because it was such a beautiful day. It's just yeah. a wine day. See, one thing is you, I'd say, well, I, I'm going to have a glass and you're going to have a glass. Why don't we – Get Why don't a bottle. we get, get a, a bottle, bottle and yeah. then we'll see how it goes. That's exactly yeah. what I thought would happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew that Kath was coming home late that afternoon and I'm like, Sarah's going to give me a lift <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just call Kath and go, come visit me up. <laughs> that was how I thought it was going to go. But we had one <sighs> glass of wine. It was very civilised. It was lovely. Mm. Um but yeah, because you have to. Yeah, because you have to go inside. I thought, oh man, if they came back out and said, "Would you like another glass?" I'd go, "Yes, please." You could just keep drinking on into the afternoon. Yeah, because there was one time that I, I did go there on my own and have a glass of wine, and then I sat down and you know, I'm like, "Well, I can only have one because I'm on my own. I can't." What do I, I, do I can't I pick leave you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't leave the table. Go back in and order another glass. And yeah. then come out and go. May as well start my with table. The <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Yeah. That is so true. Um, anyway, uh, it was super lovely though, wasn't it? It was a nice afternoon. Yeah, Jeff mm. was well. Uh, he looks so good. He looks so, Okay, this made me realise, and I don't want to freak you out, Daniel, mm. how much breakfast radio destroys your face. Oh, yeah. Because I saw him and I was like, you look about five years younger. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think either of you are particularly ravaged. Oh. <laughs> That's a relief. I actually, I didn't think I was ravaged until I saw Jeff and I went, oh, my God. It really takes a few years off you this job, doesn't it? But he's in Sin City as well, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, getting sun. I reckon, mm. that's what, and move, I reckon you're moving a lot in Sydney. You're always out and about in the sun, in mm. the surf. I think he's trying to stay fit and healthy because he's, you know, living with Steph now. So he wants to make a good impression. Also, he used to work to and ride to and from work every day. And so right. as soon as that was taken out of his routine, had to go, oh, I've got to find, got to stay fit. Yeah. So there was a bit oh, of that. Him. Yeah. I know. What an inspiration. Uh, but was no, it was like to have, get the band back together? Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was nice. You know when you realise nothing's been going on in your life, though? He's like, so, <laughs> give me all the goss, what's happening? And I was like, oh, I went to Italy in June. He's like, yeah, no. And I was like, that's all I've got. Uh, and we also ran into Henry Wagons, which was quite funny. Like As we were sitting down, there was just this funny moment where it felt like a segment from Radiothon or something because I came out and I went, Jeff. And then I was like, what? Henry Wagons. And because of Instagram, I know what Wagons has been up to. I was like, you've just been in Thailand. He's like, I have been. I just got back. And then I was like, are we just doing a, seat, a bit on the show? This is so strange. And then he was good enough to go, all right, I'll just leave you guys to it now uh, and, and back away a little bit. But there was also a moment when we were catching up where this lady comes up to us and goes, I'm so sorry to interrupt. And I was like, oh. That's okay. Preparing myself. And she goes, Geraldine Hickey. I'm just just such a fan. I was like, oh, okay. And I was waiting for her to be like, Sarah, Jeff, break fasters, but she's like, oh, no, oh, had no me. idea who you had were, no idea, oh. and, no, and I was like, oh, this is so embarrassing. And then, I, and then I sat there, and she was saying, and she did that this funny thing which Jez must experience. I don't know because this doesn't really happen to me, but she was, Jez was like, well, yeah, how are you? How's your day? They yeah. were they were kind of back and forth thing, and then the lady just stood there for a little bit longer. Then she went, oh, look, I know, I know, everyone asked for a selfie, and then. Jez goes, yeah, let's have a selfie, and they they had a they got a photo together, which was nice, and it, it made it clear to me that she probably wanted a photo from the beginning, but it just yeah was a bit embarrassed to ask for yeah. one. And, and also, like, come I... in, tune lord, you can. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I was like, I'll take the photo, don't worry about it. Also, I, like, it's not something that I, I yeah, you can tell that, you know, that began, it gets to a certain point where you go, do you want a photo, but you can't say... Would you like to get a photo? Yeah. Because it's just a bit... Yeah, know. that's not, Yeah, that's good to take that responsibility off them. And off, Did you offer? Or no, it got, no, it got just, to the point. Yeah. Would just, you ever offer or you think that's way too that's presumptuous what I and embarrassing? Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. too much of that. Mm. And it's, yeah, and it's like, yeah. But it, would, to, it would save a lot of time between the, the it awkward... Would, but they work. enjoy that, yeah. don't they? What? <laughs> 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 I don't know. It also made me realise how intense it must be if you're really famous. Because we were just sitting long live on street for, what, an hour or something, and then mm. and you had a person. Imagine if you were Hollywood famous. Mm. Or well, maybe if you're Hollywood famous, you don't sit outside Brunetti's. Or maybe I just think that maybe if you're Hollywood famous, um, not everyone would come up to you. Like, I, don't, I think it's we a bit have different. this... Like, we thought we saw Bobby Fisher, but we didn't go up to her. Oh, yeah, Bobby Fisher from Home not and Away. Chess, oh, wow. Yeah, not the chess player. 
<laughs> but I wasn't sure if it was her or not. So we just yelled at her out the window. I went, Bobby Fisher. And then I thought maybe it's not her because she didn't turn around. Yeah. What a beautiful day. I, I just quickly, I, um, I had to pick, you know, when someone calls for a lift and you are not dressed and oh, so yeah. you think, well, what are the odds that I'll actually have to get out of the car? Oh, yes. Yeah, and I had to get out of the damn car. No. I didn't even have shoes on. Oh. And I'm going into what this fancy law firm. I was I was going to leave in pyjamas. I'm sorry, you went into a law firm with, with no shoes with, on. With no shoes. I wore jeans and no shoes. Did you have to help carry stuff? I had to help carry stuff. Oh, my God. But that's the thing, especially in the suburbs as well. You know, when you're picking some up from a party, there's yeah. nowhere to hide. Like, at least when you're parked no. in the city, you know, it's bustling. But if you're, like, the lone car outside of a house... You can't do laps or no, anything. No, exactly. Yeah. Like, come in, come in! <laughs> it's like, no, guys, I'm really not jumps. wearing underpants. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. It's 7.16, you're listening to The Breakfasters. Um, so now, guys, um, I want to chat about dinking. Dinking. Dinking, yes. I feel like we should all say it a few times. It always takes a dinking, D-E-I-N-K-I-N-G. People always look at me funny, like, you know, riding on the back of someone's bike. Dinking. Yeah, get dinked. Get dinked. Yeah. Mm. Do you Can you dink, dink me? Mm. Do you want a hey, dink? You want a dink? Yeah, I'll take a dink. Can I have a dink? Yeah. It's a dinker. That's a Australian word, isn't it? I think dink so. doesn't exist anywhere else, right? Uh, it feels, yeah, I, I would, I'm would. i going to take a guess. And say yes. And say yes. I don't think I've been in a dinking position overseas, so <laughs> I, I can't speak with much you authority. You haven't had an OS dink, <laughs> <laughs> an international dink. Now, that would be an experience. No, but I was riding home um, the other night and I saw it was a lo- that lovely balmy evening. I think oh, it was yes. Friday or whatever. It was beautiful. And um, these two guys rode past me um, and it, he was dinking his mate or his his partner, who knows, whatever. It was a lovely night and I just like couldn't help myself. I was like, dinking rules, yes, like and just gave them the thumbs up because it just looked like so much fun. And it, in that moment, I'm like, it's you don't really see it that often anymore. You don't see a dink, do you? No. Can I ask how, like, how the manner of this dinking was occurring? Yeah, like, so, like, his hat, like, was he side-legged? Was he fully well, yeah, over on the back, sometimes the logistics? Sometimes there's a little seat on the back. Like, when we yes. kids, we have little seats on the back that yeah, you like kind a, of sit on, like a... Like a I don't know yes, what you call it. which yeah. is, yeah, I think, uh, what is it, like a, a bag, bike rack? Yeah, like a bag rack A bike thing, rack, yeah. A, a bag rack, yeah. Yeah, so he was sitting on the bike rack on the back because ah, you can do a front or a back dink. Yeah. Um, he was side-legged oh, and side they saddle. were cruising along and it just looked effortless, okay? It, it was beautiful. It was like a romantic scene. In my mind, they were on their first or second date and it was going swimmingly. Yeah. And I just was elated seeing it. And it was yeah a real joy. And it reminded me, um, I think it was a few summers ago, I had my um, bike stolen, had a few stolen. And my sister for a while there, we lived like around the corner from each other, was dinking me around a no. lot. Yes, it like became a thing. She's like, all right, so we're going to the pub. Well, you'll need a dink. I'm like, yep. And so we, she was dinking me and um, we were. I was really taken aback by people's reaction to the dinking. They loved it. Really? People go mad for dinking. And I was really shocked as well. A lot of the people who loved it were like, 
older people, you think that would tell you off, you know. Yeah, that's I, illegal now. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? Why are people so happy to see dinking? Mm. Because it's like old-fashioned fun, isn't it? Well, the it? last time I was dinked, I was on the back of uh, Catherine, Catherine Devon. <laughs> yeah, the last time I got dunked or dinked <laughs> was um, I was on the back of uh, my friend Catherine Devon's bicycle. Oh, wow. Now, she has a... <laughs> she has a uh, medical certificate that means she doesn't have to wear a helmet. Oh, what? Great. So, so the cops pulled us over. Oh no! Oh. And, and thinking is not legal. Oh, it's well, right. So, so I don't and know, because actually. because, I don't because she she handed no. she handed over this certificate because she carries this card with her, and they're so gobsmacked <laughs> that, <that's> that they <laughs> just got gazumped by this loophole. Wow. Yes. That they just overlooked. No, my helmet, no dinking. Yeah. Really? So, yeah, feel no free. No light, yeah, no exactly. nothing, like, <laughs> cracked cans. We've never seen this before. What a like, dream to have. What a trump card. Yeah. You just want police to pull you over. <laughs> yes, that so moment. Honestly, yeah, exactly. watch this. That's like a party trick. Mm. Yeah. It's like, let's do some laps. But uh, during primary school, I, Dad would drive me to primary school on the back of his motorbike. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. God. Cool. Cool. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like you'd get if out. It wasn't the combi van. It was yeah, the, it was the uh, motorbike. Really? So those are the two like, forms of transportation. Yeah, yeah. But then it would be like, what do you, you get? The motorbike, or you get the helmet hair all day. Ah, uh, yeah. Really? That was the downside. Yeah, I mm. feel like there is no downside to being the kid that gets to arrive on the back of a motorbike. <laughs> that is so sick. It was fun. That's like a dream come true. Mm. My sister used to put um a. A, like a crate, like a what do you call it, a milk crate? Yep. To on the front of her BMX with um, oc- octopus straps, like hockey yep. straps, and put put us in it when we were really little and like ET. <gasps> Yes. <laughs> and right, and there's photos of us being ridden around in the front of this. And I look back that on that and I'm like. That sounds profoundly unsafe. It is. I look back at these photos and I'm like, what were mum and dad doing? I Honestly. Think they, were, they were just a kid number five. Yeah. And, and whatever. They're like, going, whatever. Oki straps, even alone, give me the heebie jeebies. Oh, my God. I love Oki straps. They're fantastic. Oh, they're, they're great, Always have one like, on you. Yeah, they're if terrifying. One's, one's taut, snaps. Oh. I mean, who knows? Oh. Not, and never. by the way, I've never heard of a Noki strap injury, but I've no. fantasised about them. <laughs> no. Oh, oh, you've heard of Oki strap oh, injuries? Yeah, we've had Oki strap. We had them in our family constantly. Oh, right. I yeah. think they were self caused. Like I think they were caused by they snap back on your face. Yeah, and, and like siblings going, "Hey, come, can you feel if this is tight oh, enough?" And yeah. having just put on Too the Oki strap and then snap. Yeah. Oh, that doesn't count, does it? Oh, do you no, mean you true. were set up? You set up. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> the old stitched up. up. Mm. Just thinking of I I just had a, a visual, you, your sister's in the front of the bike. I remember my mum walked in as kids. We had like a mezzanine, so a second story. Um, mum walked in and my younger sister, who would have been like two or three at the time, we were lowering her from the second story in a basket like a straw basket tied by sheets. Oh, don't. Get and sh- out. And we still to this day, my sisters just go, we are just absolutely floored by how calm mum was when she saw it because she just had to, she was oh, mid. Terrifying. She was mid-air. Oh, my God. And we're just like, mum, look, like a little like pulley system we designed for our laundry. Have you seen it in the movie? Like in the movies <laughs> or something? We must have, yeah. That is terrifying. And mum's like, okay, just slower and then absolutely unleashed. Oh, my God. I know. Oh. Triple. Ah. Uh. 
Christos Cholkis is a playwright, essayist, screenwriter, and author of six novels, including Loaded and Dead Europe, both adapted into feature films, and The Slap and Barracuda, which became celebrated TV series. His latest novel, Damascus, takes as its subject nothing less than the events surrounding the birth and establishment of the Christian church. And the co-presenter of Superfluity joins us now. Christos, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be back. It really is for us. And... um. Now, really, in a work of fiction, do you see in the acknowledgement such a vast array of academic literature? Is <laughs> <laughs> it a bit wanky? Dude? <laughs> no, no, no. Can you can you uh, walk us through the the genesis and the process of this work's creation? Uh, the genesis is really like to kind of uh, the, the origin of it goes way back. I think right to you know trying to work out, think about what it means to lead an ethical life, and you know I, I grew up in the uh, Orthodox Christian uh, tradition. So that was kind of a foundational basis of, 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 you know, finding out something called God and then from God what what does it mean to be on this planet. Mm. I rejected that, you know, in my 10... I mean, there's a long story there, but in terms of this book, I'd rejected it and I'd rejected it in that angry way that sometimes happens when you're a teenager, out of rage, because I couldn't, couldn't uh, square the circle with sexuality and God. And I thought then I'm, I'm just never going to have anything to do with religion again. I'm going to go somewhere, you know, I'll never think about it again. But it, it's, it's weird being in that state where you're angry with something you don't believe in. Right? Mm. And then another series of events kind of dealing with faith and doubt politically, emotionally, made me rethink or made me come back to not as a believer but to something called Christian ethics in, in my 20s. And actually that's probably where that, the novel, even though it took 20 years from there to, to write it, that's where it began going, what do I owe to this? Mm. What does the world I live in owe to this philosophy? And um, and it's, it's, it's been fantastic. It's, uh, the way I've described it is that working on Damascus has felt like being a student for the first time. So actually... I actually loved reading theology. I love reading philosophy. I love reading history. I love going back to the ancient world. I mean, you know, I, I set myself this... It was just like this little rule. Like every time you start a novel, every time you start a work, you, you have... Um, just for the discipline of it, you go, okay, what are the parameters? What What is the structure? And one of the parameters for Damascus was I was going to, just for a year, only read between the 4th century... Uh, BC and the third century AD and just oh get lost God. in that world and mm. that's what I mean it felt like being a student because you don't really do that in in normal life mm. and th- I mean I needed to do that one to find the language for this book and I also just to be have real clarity about what I was doing and I'm, I, I I'll never lose that I'm, I'm still you know you go by my bed I've still got books of history and theology but I had to do all that work and then I had to work as a novelist and create a story about a man called Saul, that's his Jewish name, who was, who we know as Paul, St. Paul, who basically created Christianity as we, as we know it. And to make the novel work, I couldn't write about the saint because saints are mythical creatures. I had to write about a human man, mm. you know. So tell us about St. Paul and what it is about him that attracted you to to him, you know. Well, uh, so so Paul is he he. You know, for for people who haven't been raised in the in in these faith traditions or been raised atheist, the the Christian Bible, 
the the new te- what's known as the New Testament. There are the four Gospels, which is the story of Jesus, and then there's a book of Acts, and then we have the letters of St. Paul, and they form a, a really core part of the Christian Bible. And he was a Jewish man, he was a tent maker, so not a rich, not a noble man, just an, uh, but learned, he was a, um, in, the, in the Jewish faith, who was persecuting these heretics, because they were Jewish heretics, and then on the road to Damascus, and that's where we get the phrase, as he was going for his work, he supposed, he's, he had a vision of uh, Jesus, who he had never met, who said to him, why are you persecuting me? And what he did was, uh, out of that experience, and what I've done in the novel is, I've, I've left it open, right, whether... What what happens on the road to Damascus? I kind of left it open because when I first started writing it, I thought, do I stay true to his to his his words, like that he actually sees this resurrected figure? And I and I realised that I couldn't do that because that's not actually what I believe, and that I don't think that's what's important in terms of the book I wanted to write. Uh, but something happened on 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 the road, and as a storyteller, or as just as, as a human in the world, what fascinated me because it is, you know, to actually turn from your family, to turn from your community, to to follow a path that makes you exile. That's a really difficult thing. Um, what would what would make you do that? Mm. And that's where I got. That's how I found my way into his story. Yeah. I found that that was the story I wanted to tell. And is getting this book out of your system a different experience than getting previous works out of your system? Like, do, do you feel has something reconciled in you after? Yeah. Yes. That's. I mean, I think that this feels like a culmination of themes and obsessions that that have been there for for a long time. So, you know, a lot of people are going, oh, well, this is a very different book to anything you've done before because it's set 2,000 years ago. But it feels really connected for me, kind of, you know. I think you go right back to to my first book, Loaded, which is about a young gay guy kind of trying to find meaning in in the world and rejecting everything, Mm. rejecting every category. You know, Ari's like anti-identity politics, really. (laughs) (laughs) He's just got... um, But, you know, the second book's called The Jesus Man. The third book, Dead Europe, is actually about the loss of faith in something called communism. And and Dead Europe and Damascus, of my work, feels the most... feel there's a connection because the theme of faith is so central to it. Mm. So, yes, to your question... Daniel, yes, it feels, it feels like something with this book has is a kind of a state is is a way of me reconciling all those things. I don't think it's an, and I didn't. It's not like I was conscious in the point of writing it. Like it's only doing these things. You know, you talk about a book, and sometimes you get you want to go. Oh, look, I, I, I'm trying to create a narrative about what happens, but so much of it is instinctual. But at, at some point a few weeks ago, someone was asking me a question, and this was in, I think it was in Sydney, and and, I, and it was about age and death. And I, this book actually started not long after my father passed away, and I think it feels like also unaddressing or, or wanting to say this is something that I've got from my cultural background, mm. you know. Um, and and that too feels like that that... that, that that's going to be different with the next book. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the next book is going to be, it's going to come from a different place, I think. What are, oh, sorry, I was going to say, how, is your, how, how did it change then with that in mind, your relationship with faith or with 
religion. I mean, they're yeah. two different things. Yes, they're but, very different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How has your relationship, I mean, I suppose with faith maybe changed? Look, you know, with faith it changed. I mean, dead, dead Europe was, as I said, was a novel about, you know, I, I, kind of a, I, I had a teenage experience of faith going evangelical for a while, which I reckon a lot of queer people listening to this have, you know, I was going to say my generation, but maybe even now, that you do that kind of plea with God, make me straight, make me straight, and I'll I'll be a good Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it didn't work because I, you know, um, but I think I I was still searching for meaning, Sarah, and I found it in politics, and then you know I became quite committed to to a left wing ideology grounded in, in in Marxism, so another kind of faith, and then. Communism fell on it, and very soon after, I was in Eastern Europe, and I just had to had to you know had to listen to accounts of what what another institution. So we know what the church has done to these ethics that um, and institutions corrupt institution you know power corrupts that is is true. So I had to do that reckoning with faith twice. I think I don't to your question. I think faith for me is in the social it's actually in my relationship it's in my family it's in my friendships it's in that's that's what i have faith in i i i have been talk i've been thinking about it a lot and i think one of the important things i learned writing damascus was not to be not to fear fearful of doubt because there's a correlate you know there is faith. If you're talking about faith, you have to talk about doubt. And I think we all get nervous about doubt, mm-hmm. right, about what doubt is, you know, and does that mean that I can't be committed to something? Does that mean – but actually asking questions all the time is a really good thing. Yeah. That doesn't – you know, I think oh, I think we forget that. Yeah. Well, to touch on the process of how this coming about, go yeah. on. So just really – just – yeah. I know I can bang on about this no, for ages. <laughs> but – as, uh, just on the faith um, question, Sarah, look, I, th- I, there was this astounding thing that someone said to me the other day about um, ritual, and this is what I think I got from growing up in the Eastern tradition, like orthodoxy. You know, so you go, you know, I was talking about how I feel guilty sometimes because I will go, there's this little orthodox church n- mm. in Thornbury that I go into sometimes when I just want some peace. And I said, I feel guilty doing it as a non-believer. And she just went, just stop doing that to yourself. Ritual is a way ancient, the ancient means of dealing with fear and, and anxiety mm. and terror. And I thought that's a really wise thing because I think sometimes what we don't have in the secular modern world are those forms of ritual. Yeah. that allow us just to be quiet for 10, even just five minutes. Mm. That's, yeah, I was, I th- you know, she was this elderly Greek woman who said that to me and I thought, wow, smart. you are very wise there. Yeah. There, there are vivid depictions of, you know, slavery and infanticide and sacrifice. But when you're writing this, do you, do you finish for the day and, like, just blink and go outside? It's like, oh, I guess I'll go to the shops. <laughs> <laughs> Buy some milk. Um, sometimes you... You, you have to really shake your head and try and um, – but, you know, I, 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 I'm sure I've said this to you before. I, I feel really fortunate that I've, I discovered writing I – and mean, I discovered books. I feel really lucky that, that that happened really young in my life. But with writing, it was a way of 
putting some of those dark thoughts, fears, kind of dealing with them on the written page. And that's, that just feels like it's uh, just a, a gift because, you know, to go into the world of Damascus, you'd forget, you know, you, you look at the crucifix, you walk through any city and you just see the crucifix on the top of a church and you forget what it means. And that was the most vilest, that was the most vile, the most ugly thing that the Roman state could do to you tear open your body and violate it and that was meant to be the most shameful death right and you forget that you don't i don't think many of us look at the cross and think who were the people who were nailed to it and they were the the slaves the runaway slaves they were the re, you know the rebels they were the the the, the prisoners mm. um and you forget too that this was largely a slave society and so and we don't have the records of those people and what is you know, there are lots of criticisms I have about Christianity and one of them still being, I think, that division between flesh and soul is really dangerous. It's been dangerous in my life, you know, that I think to be fully human is to be both body and spirit. So there's a Roman character in the book, Vrasus, who represents a kind of different view of, of that, that I'm... All of that's important. But I, what was miraculous about Christianity was that it spoke to the slave... You know, and I think that is that's still almost miraculous. Mm, yeah. that, this, that, that this, and it's informed it's informed us now. I've, I get so frustrated with I've been feel like I have to defend Paul because I've fallen mm. in love with him. <laughs> I have I, because everyone knows the Corinthians line. You know that Israel Falo has made uh, famous. You know yeah. that condemning of homosexuality, and no one. But for me. The Paul I love is the Galatian in the letter to the Galatians where he says, we are not woman and we're not man. Mm, we yeah. are not Greek and we are not Jew. We are not master and we're not slave. We are one. Yeah. And that is profound that it came out of ideas 2,000 years ago and mm. they still influence this us. Book, this book might be a bit harder to adapt, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> Miniseries. Miniseries. <laughs> Well, so who's going to play St. Paul? I know. Uh, well, I Chalk can see is... Russell. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, his latest novel, Damascus, is out now through Alan Unwin, and you can catch Superfluity at 8 p.m. Tuesday. And Christos, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, and thank you, guys. I love you. Thank, le- thank you for letting me bang on. Triple <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with our Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>